Well, this series uh, we are calling The Great City of Nineveh, and uh, that is because we are going through two books of the Old Testament, uh, two prophets, Jonah and Nahum. Uh, Jonah, you probably know, Nahum is not as familiar, but both of them either prophesy about or directly to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. And so what we're going to see through these two books uh, is really some of the major points in the history of Nineveh. Uh, through Jonah, we are going to see the salvation of Nineveh. Through Nahum, we are going to see the judgment of Nineveh. Uh, through Jonah, we'll be there about five weeks, and then Nahum, another four weeks. And before we get into Jonah itself, that's where we're going to start this morning, I think it'd be helpful for us to get a bit of a lay of the land. Uh, when, you're, when you're diving back into the Old Testament thousands of years ago, it's really helpful if you know kind of where are we in the world, uh, who's involved, who are the major players. So that's what we're going to do right from the start. And to do that, I have a couple of maps and a timeline. So if you like that kind of thing, if you're really analytical, you're gonna, this is going to be great. The rest of you, uh, just bear with me. So uh, maps, here's our first map. Now here what we see is uh, the, the heyday of the Assyrian Empire. You can see that this here, the big green blob, is all the territory that Assyria uh, kind of dominates at this time, from Asia all the way down to Egypt. And you can see by comparison that Israel is very, very small. Uh, in fact, at this time, uh, Assyria basically could take over whoever they wanted, and they did. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is that even though Assyria was uh, kind of the major empire of the time, they did go through uh, periods of weakness and periods of strength. So during the prophecy of Jonah, they were, they were actually in a period of relative weakness, and then during the time of Nahum, they were in a time of, of relative strength. So um, we also need to know about Israel. Now, this is something that you may not realize. Go to the next map, please. Here's Israel, but at this point in history, you, you may not know this, but actually there's a division See, Israel and Judah, they, they used to be all Israel. Uh, during the, the reigns of King Saul, King David, King Solomon, they were all together. That was Israel. But right after King Solomon, who started out as a very wise king, he ended up very, very foolish. And because of his foolishness, he pursued the things of this world. Uh, he taxed his people harshly. He left the kingdom really in shambles and was ready to crumble. His son took the throne and did just as bad as his father. And so that meant that the northern 10 tribes, they actually, uh, they separated and called themselves Israel. And then the bottom two tribes were called Judah. There was this separation there. And that means that every time we hear Israel now, we're really talking about the northern part of Israel. That's where Jonah prophesied. And um, both, of these, both of these kingdoms, sadly, they end up falling. But for the moment, they're both trying to make a go of it, and they each have uh, different kings. Now, we need to know a bit more about kind of the big picture. So here's our timeline. Uh, this is our time period from about 900 BC to 600 BC. In case you're unfamiliar with the time before Jesus, it starts off with big numbers and goes smaller. The time is going that way. Okay, it's a little weird, but that's how it works. And the very first thing that happens on our timeline uh, back in uh, the year 930 is that the kingdom is split. So that's what I just, where, where Israel and Judah, they split. That happened at that point. And after that, we're going to see the Assyrian Empire. Now, it actually existed before that point uh, for, for hundreds of years. But right up to just before the year 800, that was where the Assyrians, because of some internal struggle, uh, they became relatively weak. And so during that time, the king of Israel, who was King Jeroboam II, he took advantage of that opportunity and actually expanded Israel's borders in the north. So you have to remember, they're neighbors, this big empire, neighbors with Israel. And so he kind of fortified those cities. And during that time was when Jonah prophesied. 
We're not sure exactly where, but during the, the reign of King Jeroboam II for sure, and probably around that time of the Assyrian weakness, Jonah prophesied, and then, this is going to be a spoiler, I'm going to tell the whole story, okay? So if you don't know what happened in Nineveh, here's what happens. They repent, okay? They repent, Jonah prophesies, warns them, they repent, and interestingly, right after that, or almost right after, they go into a season of strength. Through their repentance, they actually get stronger as a nation, but they end up not following God beyond maybe one generation because they come back and they actually destroy Israel, which is interesting. Through their repentance, they get stronger. They come back. They sack the city. Everyone goes off into exile. That's why I got the unhappy face. It's a very sad thing. And about 100 years later, Assyria is still relatively strong. Nahum, that's where he prophesies. And he prophesies in exile, and this time he's speaking to Nineveh, but he's speaking about the judgment of God, the coming judgment of God for their evil, which happens, Nineveh falls to Babylon in 612 BC. So this just helps us to see the scope, kind of, of what's, what's going on in these two prophetic books, and what it tells us very clearly is that when we're reading this history, this biblical history is actually the history of the world. This is the history of humanity. Everything I told you could be found in other historical texts, right? The Bible is not in a separate category. It is a historical text talking about the history of the world. The unique perspective, though, of the Bible is that it doesn't just tell us what happened or who it happened to or when it happened. It tells us why things happened. It gives us the story behind the story of God's working and his purpose in all of these events of humanity. So that means as we dig into this ancient story, we actually are going to learn more about what it means to be a human being because human beings haven't changed that much. And we are also going to learn more about the nature of God because God has not changed at all. See, the story of the great city of Nineveh is the story of a rebellious humanity. We see it even in, in Jonah himself, but certainly in the city of Nineveh. And we see God's response to that rebellious humanity. First, with grace. That's the prophecy of Jonah. God brings grace to the city of Nineveh. But then through Nahum, we see judgment. First mercy, and then justice. And as we dig into the story, there are going to be a lot of big questions that we come up against. Here, here's a few of them that came to my mind that we're going to we can sort of anticipate asking and answering. Number one, what is God's answer to the evil of the world? How can God be gracious to wicked people? Why is obedience to God so difficult? And why is showing compassion towards others almost more difficult. What are we to think of a God who destroys an entire city? And how are we to take any of this seriously when at the center of one of the books, there's a guy who's swallowed by a giant fish and then he's spit out three days later? Like, what are we to make of that? What are we reading here? Is that history? Is that, is that just a story? What, what is that? All of these questions and so many more are going to be asked and answered in our series. I'm very excited about it, but we're going to begin with just kind of a like a bit of an appetizer, kind of an hors d'oeuvre, okay? Because we're going to look today just at the first three verses of Jonah, just the first little bit. So I'd invite you, uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there or just listen. It's not long, but we are going to see the very beginning of this, uh, this story of Jonah the prophet. So here's God's word to us this morning. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. That's it. Three verses. In them, we, we actually learn a lot about Jonah, a lot about Nineveh, and a lot about his response to God in this specific uh, situation. So that's what we're going to do to start, is, uh, is learn more about the major players here. First, who is Jonah? Then who is Nineveh? Then, why did Jonah run? This is a story which begins with a prophet running. Why did he run? Well, let's begin in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So that tells us right away that Jonah is, in fact, a prophet. That's what that means there when it says the word of the Lord came to him. That's the job of a prophet. They hear from God, and then they speak to their people. Uh, this is not a new thing for Jonah. He's been a prophet for a little while. We see back in 2 Kings that uh, he'd done some other prophetic work. Uh, this is 2 Kings 14. It says he, uh, referring to King Jeroboam, restored the borders of Israel. That's what I was talking about, the northern border there. From Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who is from Gath-Hefer. So this is the same Jonah, same dad, Amittai, uh, from the town of Gath-Hefer, which is in northern Israel, which makes sense. And the interesting thing we see here is that Jonah actually encouraged King Jeroboam to expand Israel's borders. Uh, the reason that's interesting is that if you know King Jeroboam II, you know he was not a godly king. There were many kings that were in charge of God's people that actually did not follow the ways of God. And usually at that time, the role of the prophet was to act kind of as the opposition party, right? To speak against whatever the king wants to do. So you, whatever idea they have, if they're not following God, is usually not a good idea. And so the prophet was to say, don't do that. God says not to do that. You're foolish, you're wicked, all those things. In this case, interestingly, God uses Jonah and a wicked king to protect his people, to strengthen that northern border. Because even though Assyria at this point is relatively weak, that's the constant threat in the back of everyone's mind, that their neighbors are this ruthless and vicious nation. And so we need to know a little bit more about Nineveh. Uh, verse 2 tells us pretty clearly that Nineveh, uh, it says there, uh, God says, Go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, uh, Nineveh is called a great city four times in the book of Jonah. That word really means large. It was a, it was a large city, the biggest city in the world for about 50 years. Uh, it was established by uh, Noah's grandson, whose name was Nimrod, which is a great name, Nimrod. So he started Nineveh. So, you, so it's been around for a long time. It's grown to be just the city is, is big and powerful, but also uh, the, the surrounding area is also large and powerful. Uh, in 1845, uh, they excavated Nineveh. They found it. It's in northern Iraq. And they excavated sort of the, the inner city walls. And this is the, this is the diagram. Looks like kind of like every ancient city. It's got a a river running through it for a water supply, the walls around it, and these little squares are the gates where you would, uh, you know, have security so you could decide who comes in and out. And this gate, the Nergal Gate, they uh, reconstructed it to see what it would look like. So here's a picture. That's kind of what you could, if you were to be there, you would see this massive gate every little while where people could come in and out, massive walls. It really was a powerful city, a wealthy city, uh, when you think of Nineveh, you should think in today's um, mind of like Tokyo or Paris or New York, this was the city in the ancient world. It, it was powerful. It was wealthy. It was a great city from the world's point of view. The difference is that 
the greatness of Nineveh did not come because of their, like because of industry or finance or, or culture or art. It wasn't that kind of greatness. Its greatness was built upon their military ambitions. See, the, the thing about the Assyrian rulers is they reveled in their ruthlessness. They, they were known the world over for being just bloodthirsty and, and, and violent. Whenever they would come into an area to conquer it, they wouldn't just conquer it, they would destroy everyone. In fact, the, uh, the emperors of Assyria, one of them had stone relief like, like an artist. He would say to him, I want you to carve this scene of me uh, decapitating my enemies, of me dismembering the people that I have, I have defeated. And I want to put it up, like imagine putting it up in the legislature, like in Victoria. That's where they would put it, right at the center of the, of the town, of the position of power. They were reveling in their... And their bloodthirst. There are other stories of uh, emperors that would, to shame the people that they conquered, they would leave them alive and cut off their arms and legs, uh, but they would leave their right arm attached so they could shake their hand as they died. That was the Ninevites. They, they, they reveled in that. They, they loved that. They wanted everyone to know how strong and powerful they were and how ruthless they were. This was the neighbors of Israel. They were a terrorist state in the true sense of the word. And Israel lived under a constant threat of, this nation, threat of this nation. In fact, they'd been attacked a number of times. And the only reason that they hadn't yet been kind of sacked or defeated was because they kept paying them off. That the northern king of Israel would pay them tribute and they would you know, stay at bay, but still the northern towns were constantly attacked. So if you put yourself in Jonah's mindset, he knew people that had survived Assyrian attacks. He himself lived under the threat of the Assyrian army. The people of God for generations had been no doubt praying, God, when are you going to deal with this evil nation? When are you going to do something about their ruthlessness, about their violence, about the, the slavery and torment that they put us through? God, when are you going to answer? And here in the book of Jonah, in the prophecy of God, we have his answer. But it's not an answer that Jonah particularly likes. Now, God does speak against their evil. Look again at verse 2. Uh, <clears throat> Go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God is saying very clearly, I haven't been blind to what's going on. I'm not apathetic. I'm not ignorant. I know what's been going on, and I have an answer. He, he's telling them, he wants Jonah to go and say, you better turn from your evil ways. The, the problem is, the problem for Jonah is that Jonah is being sent ahead of the judgment. God isn't just judging them. He isn't just bringing justice. He's sending Jonah on ahead, which means that his prophecy is a prophecy of warning. It means that the Ninevites, they have an opportunity to repent. And for Jonah, this is, he, he cannot get this through his mind. He can't believe that God would give them an opportunity to repent. And this is what leads us to our final verse, to, to Jonah running. Look at verse three. But Jonah rose and he fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So uh, Jonah should have, when he heard the voice of God, the call on his life, he should have gone northeast to Nineveh. Instead, he goes directly west to Tarshish, which is uh, probably on the edge of Spain, the edge of the known world, right? This is Jonah. He's fleeing from what God is calling him to do. And the question that we should be asking is, why, why does he do this? Why does Jonah run? Well, there are a few answers that were given uh, specifically in the text and in, in the story of Jonah and some that we can guess at uh, given his response. For example, we can, we can probably guess that there was a level of fear for Jonah. 
I mean, given what I just told you about the Ninevites, if you could think about walking into their hometown and proclaiming God's judgment, a God that they don't know or worship, saying, hey, you guys better turn. Everything you're doing is wrong. You better stop or God's going to judge you. You can imagine how long he would still have his arms attached, right? It wouldn't be good for him. There's a level of fear there. There's also very clearly uh, a lack of compassion in Jonah. We see this in chapter four, where, where he says to God directly, look, the reason I ran is because I did not like the idea of you showing any mercy to the Ninevites. I couldn't stand that. The, com- the theme of compassion is one that is central to the, the story of Jonah. We're going to get there, but not today. Today, we're going to look at a, at a question, at a, at a layer of his disobedience that is even deeper. Because in his active disobedience, in turning away from God, fleeing the call of God in his life, we see an answer from Jonah to one of the deepest questions that any person of faith can, can have. It's a question that we don't always know that we're asking and answering, but it underlies our either obedience or disobedience. And so the question that I think we're seeing here lived out is this. Does God know what's best for us? Does God know in the specific callings of our life, in the circumstances of our life, and in the big picture of humanity, does God know what's best? Now, there are other big questions we can and should ask about God. Like, does God exist? Or or is the God of the Bible the one true God? Those are important questions. Ones that we should wrestle with, but we're not asking them here because that would not have been the question for Jonah. See, Jonah knew God. He believed in God. He believed that the God of Israel was the one true God. Uh, He'd heard his voice. That wasn't the issue. The issue for him was, was, Jonah, do you trust that God knows what's best for you in every circumstance, even those circumstances where when you look on the horizon, you can see nothing but heartache and difficulty, where you you can't see how this is going to work out for good. Even there, do you trust God? Because from Jonah's point of view, this this call of God, he could see no good in it. If the mission went bad, then uh, there would definitely be no good for Jonah, right? If he went in there and they heard his, you know, his call from God to repent, he could expect a slow and painful death, which we'd all agree is not so good, right? It's not good. But if his mission succeeded and the Ninevites repented, In Jonah's mind, that was also not good because that meant that all of these evildoers, they were going to get off scot-free. So you can imagine him just in that millisecond and him thinking, man, this this is a lose-lose situation. There's no way that this is good. I know it's God's voice, but I can't do this. I'm going the other direction. And see, this is where this ancient story becomes very, very relevant for us because all of us, those of us here who follow God, all of us have been or will be in situations where we are, we struggle to trust God's word. We struggle to to trust his call on our lives, to believe that it will actually be good for us. I mean, there are commands of God in the Bible that are difficult. Just on the face of them, they're difficult. For example, the Bible tells us that we should deny ourselves, that we should die to ourselves, that we should give sacrificially, Give to the point, our, our, our wealth and our resources, our time, give to the point that it hurts. The Bible tells us to forgive someone who repeatedly hurts us. The Bible tells us to consider others more than ourselves and to pray for those who persecute us, to love those who hate us. If we actually live out any of these commands, we're going to come to a point 
where we see the way forward that God is leading us and yet we think to ourselves, man, I, how is this going to be good? I, I, can't, I can't fathom how going in this direction is going to be good for me. And this is why this question is so important because it brings us really to the heart of what we believe about the character of God. Do we actually believe that God is, is good and gracious and powerful and that he wants good for us or do we believe that God is that God is distant, that God is working things out for his good, but maybe not for mine, that God really isn't interested in bringing about joy in my life. There's a lot of answers to this question. We probably ourselves have landed in different places. Each individual may have a different, different answer to, to who God is and his character. But here's the thing. If you believe the Bible, then there's only one answer, and it's not complicated. It's not unclear. The answer to the question, does God know what's best for us, is yes. Yes, absolutely. In fact, God is the only one who knows what's best for us. God and God alone, he alone has the, the wisdom and moral purity to discern right from wrong in every situation. He and he alone has the power to organize and orchestrate these circumstances of our life to bring about our good. And he and he alone does what's best for us in every situation. See, there are some doctrines of God, some things that we read in the Bible about God, for example, the Trinity, that are relatively, they're, they're mysterious. I mean, there's clarity about it, but when we really get into it, man, it, it, it is difficult to understand. It takes a lifetime of thinking about it. But this doctrine, the doctrine of God's goodness and his intentions towards us, it is, it is not complicated. It is not unclear. We see it time and again throughout Scripture. Here's just a few verses, just to remind us of what the Bible says about God. Uh, here are a couple of verses showing us that God knows what's best. Psalm 1830 says this, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Job 12:13. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. So God, though, doesn't just know what's right. He does what's right. He does what's best for us. Here's Daniel 4.35. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand. No one can stop God from doing what he wants to do. If he knows what's best, he can do what's best and he will in our lives. And Psalm 145 verse 9 I think says it most succinctly. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. If you're here this morning and you you don't believe the Bible, you don't believe that the Bible is absolutely true, then those verses are probably not going to convince you of God's character. And that's okay. My hope would be that for you, you would spend more time in the Word of God, that you would get to know the Bible more, and that you would become increasingly convinced of its accuracy and its truth. But if you're here this morning and you are a person of the Word, like you're a Christian, you'd say, no, I believe the Bible, then these verses and so many others mean that we can have absolute confidence in the goodness of God. That God does know what's best. God does what's best in our lives. That's not the issue. The issue is whether we trust God's goodness in those situations where it's very, very difficult for us to see that there's any good down that path. And the reason this is so important is because what we see in the life of Jonah is not atypical. Like, it's normal for God to put his people in situations where he's calling us to something, and yet he doesn't give us all the details. 
We see it right from the very beginning. You know, Abraham, Abraham's doing fine. He's got his little tribe. He's doing things. And God says, Abraham, go out from the place that you know. Go to this land that I'm calling you to. But he doesn't give him any details. God doesn't tell him what's going to happen once he's there. He just says, go and trust me that it will be good for you. Uh, the disciples of Jesus. If you remember when they are called, Jesus comes, he just says, follow me. He doesn't tell them what they're going to do. He doesn't tell them how it's going to happen. He doesn't give them any details at all. He just says, trust me, this is going to be good for you. And with Jonah, it's the same thing. God says, go to Nineveh. I'm not going to tell you how it's going to work out. This is normative. This is normal. This is what God does in the lives of his people. Why? Because what he wants for us is not that we would trust his plan, but that we would trust him. See, when he puts us in positions where we can't see what's over the horizon, or when we look ahead and we see, man, it, it doesn't look good, it looks hard. God says, what are you going to trust? He, he's putting us in a position where our very faith in him is tested. And that's a good thing for us. Because through that, we come to the point where we, we love him more, we trust in him more. There's an author by the name of Oswald Chambers. You might know of him. He's written uh, well, a bunch of books, but his most famous one is a devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. And he, in speaking about this, the way that God works, uh, he says it very directly, which I think is helpful. Here's what he says. He says, have you been asking God what he is going to do? Have you? I know I have at certain points in my life. God, what are you going to do? Why are you leading me here? What, tell me all the details. If you tell me all the details, I am, I'm going to go in that direction, God. If you would just fill in all of the blanks, oh, that would bring you so much peace. Have you been asking God what he is going to do? He will never tell you. God does not tell you what he is going to do. He reveals to you who he is. See, the Christian walk is a walk where we grow closer to the Lord. And in that, we come to understand and appreciate that that is actually the best thing for us. Because God himself is the source of life, the source of wisdom, the source of joy. And if we can come closer to him, if we can grow in our faith in him, that's better than simply seeing the plan that he has. It's key for understanding the, God's intentions and purposes in our life. And it's key for understanding the book of Jonah. Because while Jonah is a massive story, like thousands of lives hanging in the balance, it's also a story of Jonah himself and his struggle to trust God and to obey God in this, in this call that he's placed on him. And this is a struggle that we all have. So, the remaining time we have, we're going to ask and answer a secondary question. Right? based on the answer that does God know what's best? Yes, he does know what's best. So here's the, the secondary question. How then do we consistently, and I would add genuinely, believe that God knows what's best? How do we, when we are called to certain things that are difficult, that we can't see the way forward, how do we act in such a way that we actually believe that God knows what's best and our life shows that? Well, the answer is this. The answer we find in the text is this. To do that, we need to question our ability to see clearly and trust God's perfect vision. We need to question our own ability as human beings to see the way forward clearly. Because isn't that what Jonah did? I mean, God said to him, Jonah, go to Nineveh, and immediately in the text, we don't see any deliberation. We don't see any prayer. We don't see any time of counsel, figuring out, should I actually do this? No, right away, his instinct is 
that does not seem right. That does not seem good. I'm going in the other direction. Which is surprising given the fact that he's a prophet. That's not typical for prophets, but it's not surprising given the fact that he is a human being. One of the distinguishing marks of humanity is our very strong, very misguided faith in ourselves. We tend to go with our gut on a lot of things. We tend to go with our wisdom if it seems right as opposed to what God says is right. And in fact, that is the essence of sinful humanity. We see it right from the very beginning of sin entering the world. I want to jump back for a moment to look at uh, the Garden of Eden, to see Adam and Eve, and to see how it is that they took that step of disobedience, because it's very much the same. Uh, If you know the story, God created a perfect place, a perfect garden. He put perfect people in it, and he gave them a command. He said, there's a tree in the garden. You shall not eat of it. There's a fruit there. Do not eat of it. Here's what he says uh, in verse 17 of Genesis 2. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So that's the command. God's saying, if this is not good for you. Don't do this. This will be bad. But then in Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve milling about the tree, right? They're looking at it. Satan is there tempting them. And look at the way that they now look at that very same fruit. Uh, Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate. So they were both there. I mean, I know Eve ate first, but they're both in sin here. They're both looking at this fruit that God said, don't eat this, it's gonna be bad. And in their minds, they're thinking, I don't know, it looks pretty good. Right? I mean, it looks delicious. It looks like it would be, I would enjoy it and it looks like it would make me wise. I kind of think that I know better. I know God said one thing, but I'm gonna go with my gut on this. And they step into disobedience. Now notice the the shift in in verse seven. Once they eat, there's a language of, of seeing here, which is interesting. So in verse seven, it says this. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That last part is showing that they recognize their shame and their guilt that they have done something wrong. All of a sudden, you know that feeling where you know you've done something wrong and just in the pit of your stomach? That's what they feel. And their eyes are open, meaning... They thought they saw clearly before, but they didn't. In their sin, sin had already entered their mind and heart. They were blind. They were blind to what was best for them, but they couldn't see it. Once they stepped into it, they they saw the reality. They saw what they had done. See, this, this is the pattern of humanity, that we have a misguided trust in ourselves, in our sin. Even for those of us who are free from the consequences of sin in Christ, As we give ourselves over to sin, our view of of life, of situations, of calls of God will be warped. And that means that we can't trust ourselves. We shouldn't trust ourselves. But we seem so confident, don't we? Don't you feel like you really know what's right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I think of it like this. Do you remember uh, in science class or just in school, would there be group projects? And uh, the teacher would say, okay, we're going to do a group project. I'm going to pair you up. And you think to yourself, oh man, I hope I don't get that kid in the corner because I don't, I don't want to have to do all this work myself. And sure enough, you get paired up with the kid who's barely awake most of the time, has, doesn't do any of his homework, and you think, man, I'm going to have to carry this thing. If I have any hope of a good grade, I'm going to have to carry this, and I'm going to have to try to find a way to say no to all of his bad ideas 
Because he's not going to have one good idea. So he's going to come and be like, hey, uh, you know, for a science project, you ever put Mentos into uh, Coke? That's cool. We should do that for a science project. And you're like, that's not at all. We're studying biology. What are you talking about? That's not going to work. So you have to find a way to say, yeah, why don't you do some experiments with that? And on presentation day, I have a really important job. I need someone to advance the slides when I'm doing the presentation. If you could do that, that would be great. Boy, you'd be a really big help. We think of that with God, right? That, man, I'm the only one who has good ideas. I'm the only one who knows. And God, you've given me some counsel, but I'm going to filter it through what I think is best because I'm sort of carrying the burden of joy in my life. I'm going to go with my gut on things because I trust my own instincts. That's what Jonah did. Jonah, right away, God says, go there. He's like, there's no way that's a good idea. I'm going over here. And yet, it's really interesting. In the book itself, Jonah's supposed wisdom and confidence is totally revealed as foolishness. It's undermined in the story itself. We're going to get to this next week, but here's a little, uh, a little preview. Jonah 1.9 Jonah's on a boat. He's heading to Tarshish. God has sent a storm. The sailors are going nuts. They wake him up and they're trying to find out, like, what's going on? Who are you? And here's his response. Oh, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Really, Jonah? You fear the Lord? You honor God? You're running from God and the God that you say made the sea, you thought it'd be good to sail on the ocean to try to escape him? Like, don't you see, Jonah, a bit of a disconnect? that maybe you're not as smart as you think you are? The writer of Jonah shows us Jonah's foolishness. And we can see it. We can laugh at it. We can be like, man, Jonah, what a, what a goof. And yet, we do the very same thing in our own lives. That there are things that we say we believe, and yet we act in the exact opposite way. For example, we say things like, you know, I know that God is in control. I know God is in control of every part of my life, and yet we spend half our life worrying about things that we can't control. We have our lives filled with anxiety because we're racking our brains up at night trying to influence things that are clearly outside of our control. God says to trust him with those things, and, and we, we say we believe it, but we, we struggle to actually walk in that obedience. We say that we know we're forgiven in Christ, and yet, and, and yet we allow Guilt and shame to consume us. We say we know that all of my sin has been taken away, and yet we, we find ourselves in deep depression, thinking about the sin in our lives. We say that we have a hope of heaven, that we know that one day we will be in heaven for all of eternity, that it's the greatest joy of our lives, and yet we spend most of our life here on earth trying to make this, this life on earth into heaven. We put all of our energy and focus onto accumulating greater wealth and greater experiences, totally ignoring the call of God, totally forgetting that we have an eternity of joy to look forward to. We do the very same thing Jonah does. When we're called to something that seems difficult or unwise or we can't see how it's going to work out, we immediately think, well, I'm, I'm going to go this way. So what's the hope for us? What's the hope for Jonah? Well, we need to question our ability to see clearly. And we need to trust God's perfect vision. There's a, a line that I came across in a novel. It's a novel about a very big fish uh, and an ocean voyage. Uh, you, you probably know the novel. It's Moby Dick. I know it's a whale, actually. But you know what I'm saying. It's, it's got parallels. And uh, in Moby Dick, I didn't realize this, but early on, Ishmael's the main character. He goes on this whaling adventure. But right before he goes, uh, he visits a chapel in the seaside town. 
And in that chapel, there is a, a, a priest who's preaching a sermon. And he's preaching on Jonah, which makes sense. Herman Melville, in his just wisdom, he said, we're going to preach on Jonah. It's actually a pretty good sermon. In that sermon, the, the guy's name is Father Mapple. Father Mapple preaches on Jonah, and he's got this line in there that really gets to the heart of Jonah's issue, and our issue in terms of obedience to God. Here's what he says. He says, and if we obey God, we must disobey ourselves, wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. And that's really the crux of the issue, isn't it? That's why it's so hard. Because to obey God means that I'm going against everything in me that says, no, I think that's better. I know that God says this, but man, I sure feel like that seems better. And yet that's, that's the issue that we always deal with. That to obey God means to disobey ourselves. But, but disobeying ourselves and obeying God gets easier if we fill our minds with God's track record and our track record. I mean, if you think back to those times when you've gone against God's will, uh, it, it's very rare that you would find that that goes to anything good. Sometimes it goes immediately south. Sometimes it takes a while and then ends up south. God's track record is perfect. And Jonah himself, he would have been able to look back on God's activity in the life of his people and he would have seen goodness and grace and power. He knew the Exodus story. That had happened just 700 years prior where God had saved his people out of slavery, brought them through the Red Sea. He'd given them the law. He'd given them kings, established them as a people. God had protected them from their enemies, even in Jonah's own lifetime. If Jonah had filled his mind and heart with those truths, it would have been much easier for him to say, I, I can't see how this is going to be good, but God, I trust you. I trust you because I see in the past, in my own life, and in history that you have always been working out for the good of your people. And look, if, if Jonah can say that, and he could have, we here, this side of the cross, we can say it all the more. Because Jonah knew that there was a time when God passed over sins. But we know there was a time that through the cross that sin has been dealt with for good, forever. We who are in Christ, we know the extent of God's love. That God didn't just say he loves us. God didn't just promise to somehow deal with the, the essential problem of our lives. He sent his very son to come and suffer and die on our behalf so that we could be set free from our bondage to sin. We know that God has done everything possible at great sacrifice to himself so that we would have hope and joy forever in heaven. And because we know that, it means that every command, every command in the word, every prompting that is genuinely of the Holy Spirit, it all comes under this great banner of God's goodness and God's grace that he still wants what's best for us and he is always leading us to a place that is best. See, Father Mapple, he, he tells the truth. It is hard. It is hard for us in those moments. We, we struggle to go our way instead of God's way. But it's not just that it's the right thing to do. It's also that when we obey God, when we heed his call, we are actually going closer and closer towards our greatest joy. It's not just right. It, it, it's joyful. It's towards an experience of happiness. Now, I want to lean a little bit farther on Father Mapple because he seems to be a very eloquent, even though fictional, preacher. And uh, he ends his sermon with kind of an exhortation talking about the delight of obedience to God. Now, I promise you, if you look, if you 
get Moby Dick later this afternoon. I didn't take the whole sermon from Father Mapple, okay? But there's a couple points that are so good that I'm like, man, this is well said. So I'm gonna read to you the last bit of his sermon where he talks about just how great it is, how enjoyable it is to be obedient to God. And so here's what he says. <clears throat> he says, delight, top gallant delight, which I don't know what that is, but it sounds like the best kind of delight that I've ever heard of, okay? So top gallant delight is to him who acknowledges no law or Lord, but the Lord his God, and is only a patriot of heaven. And eternal delight and deliciousness will be his, who coming to lay down, can say with his final breath, O Father, mortal or immortal, here I die. I have striven to be thine, more than to be this world's or mine own. Yet this is nothing. I leave eternity to thee, for what is man that he should live out a lifetime for his God? He's saying the very best thing that I can do with my life is to follow your lead, to go where you are leading me because that will always arrive at a place where I experience the delight of knowing you, the delight of your presence. See, for Jonah, he was going, you see in the text, away from the presence of God. But when we obey God, when we heed his call, we are always going closer and closer towards him. Paul, the great apostle Paul says it this way in a lot less words. In Philippians 1.20, he says, With full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Why, Paul? Why? You're willing to go to, to death, even for Jesus, or to life? Either way, you're saying, why? Because it's right? Yes, because it's right. But more than that, because it's the road to joy, the road to genuine happiness and delight. God always knows what's best for us. And if he is leading us somewhere, it will be best for us. He's demonstrated it throughout history, throughout the Bible. And so the question, the only remaining question for us is this. Is there a call of God on your life right now? Is there something that, that you know is of the Holy Spirit, that you've been reading in the Bible, a command there that you see applies to you directly, and have you been deliberating about it? What we see in light of this text is that if you know it's of God, now hear me, there are some things we feel a prompting, we have an idea, and it's good and right that we deliberate, that we go and ask for counsel, we go to the word to make sure that it is from God. But when we're at that point, the deliberation stops. If you have a call on your life, today's the day to obey. Today, right now, with full confidence that whatever you're being called to, it will lead to your greatest joy because, because God is the one who is calling you. And because he always knows what's best. Because he loves you. And he is going to lead you to greater and greater good for his glory. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you, God, that even in this Old Testament text, we, we, we wrestle, we see, Lord, some essential truths about who we are as human beings. God, I confess that there have been many times when I have distrusted your word. God, I confess that there are many times when I've, I've heard clearly what I should do and I have not done it. God, would, would you forgive me for that? Would you forgive everyone here who is in that position? Lord, help us to experience your grace and your mercy and help us, Lord, to turn from that disobedience. Help us to walk in faith, fully confident, Lord, that whatever you call us to, it will be for our best. Lord, it may be down roads which are difficult. It may be over mountains that we can't see past. But God, that is not our hope. Our hope is in you. And so God, I pray for us as a people, Lord, for those of us here who follow you, would you give us that faith? Would you give us that confidence that we would obey, knowing that in that direction is our greatest joy? 
I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.